Welcome, everyone. You're listening to Risky Behavior, where no subject is off limits. Sit back, tune in, and enjoy a beverage with us as we explore controversial issues and answer your health and wellness-related concerns, ranging from nutrition and exercise to sex and prescription drugs. I'm here with co-host Dr. Shetha Chakraborty, who's a national media risk expert, as seen on CNN, the BBC, Fox News, and more. But don't just think this hour is all science as usual. After four seasons as a regular guest and food scientist on The Dr. Oz Show, Dr. Taylor Wallace, who the Huffington Post calls the nation's premier food and nutrition guru, will help me loosen lips and spill tea with special guests that you won't want to miss. I am so thrilled to have Margaret Klein-Salomon, who's a clinical psychologist turned, how cool is this, climate warrior. And her work helps people face the deeply frightening, painful truths of the climate emergency and then work to transform their despair into effective action. She's the founder and executive director of the Climate Mobilization, and we're gonna get into that. Uh, But first, I wanna mention that she just came out with an excellent book, which is titled Facing the Climate Emergency, How to Transform Yourself with the Climate Truth. And it's a radical new self-help guide for the climate emergency. So firstly, Margaret, thank you so much for joining us. Normally we would be in studio, but these are the times of COVID, so we're making full use of technology and we're doing this from our, our <laughs> locations, wherever we are. Thank you for joining us. We're making thanks radical so much changes. For, there you go. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So let's get into your book. What's it like? So two things. One, it just came out just as this infectious disease hit us. So I imagine it's been disruptive to you um, and to your plans as it has to so many of us. But Take this opportunity for, and, and let our listeners get a little bit of a sneak peek almost into what they can expect. What are some of the highlights where we really wish you could have rolled it out as you planned, but we'd love to hear you know, what we can anticipate when you get that chance to get on that real book tour. <laughs> I, so yeah, what I would love to be doing now and in the coming months is going around the country, talking to uh, groups of people in bookstores or lecture halls or community centers about the climate emergency and how to process this as a whole person, right? Far too often we talk about climate is as a, an intellectual thing, something that you only deal with with your brain and not your uh, heart, your values, your identity, And so I am looking to move people to engage with climate with everything that they have. And yeah, those events are canceled. So we're going to be doing different online discussions and uh, doing our best. So I have to start out and ask, I mean, because I was really impressed with, you know, your bio and your background. How does a psychologist get involved with climate change? Like what, what just, what, what, what morning did you wake up and say, hey, you know, I'm gonna make an impact on climate? I was in the final year of my PhD here in New York City, just getting progressively more and more freaked out about the climate emergency. It was like there was a red flashing light Uh, in my face all the time, just telling me, you know, things are not okay. Um, And it was a process 
of learning, well, overcoming emotional barriers. Um, I used for a long time the defense of willful ignorance, meaning I knew enough to know that I didn't want to know right. more, that this was information that was really scary and anxiety provoking. But so as I got over those defenses, I was becoming more mature. And um, so I got over those defenses, then I learned more, then I got more freaked out. And it just escalated into me thinking, what on earth can I do? What, and, and um, yeah, I started an organization about five and a half years ago. So wait a second to ask this question, but since you just said that, I want to, I want to tap your brain. You're a clinical psychologist. So obviously you're familiar with the discipline, the umbrella discipline and psychology generally as you know, superficially at least. And, um, this concept of fear versus hope, right? So, so many people are mobilized when they see the red, like you just, just described when they see the, ma the magnitude of this emergency. What, how did you overcome that fear? And what is the kind of, what goes on in the brain? And how do we motivate through fear versus hope? I get this question a lot and I have my answer to it, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. So what actually like flipped the switch for me was a, a friend. So I was progressively getting more freaked out. And then I thought, okay, I'm an academic, uh, you know, I've been in school my whole life. This is, I'm about to get my PhD. I will start writing about climate and psychology. And this will be a, you know, whatever, a side gig. And it'll be a brand and it'll be, you know, I, I was an academic. I thought I'll do commentary. But then my friend said to me, don't start a blog. Discourse isn't enough. Think, what could you do to actually solve this crisis. And so it was that challenge to me that actually, there had been a lot leading up to it, but that actually kind of flipped a switch. And I think that it is fear. Yes, you absolutely do need it. I, I think anyone who's not afraid of the climate emergency is a little bonkers at this point. And I, um, yeah, and I think the climate movements idea that fear doesn't work as a motivator is one of literally the worst ideas in history and has held the movement back tremendously. I do think you also need hope. And it's not just hope like, or it's not, it's not really at all hope like, oh, things might be okay. But it's what Joanna Macy calls active hope, which is like, I will do everything I can to solve this. Right. And that's, and that's what my friend's challenge did for me. It, cause people don't, are, it's just not, our society doesn't encourage people to think that way, to think of themselves as political actors who can create a transformation in our society, right? It's just not, I had never, I had never thought of myself that way, but I want, so I want to encourage people. And in the book, I do encourage people to, change how they view themselves and to try to think of themselves like what if your whole life was actually leading up to this and to this challenge and this moment and what if you're that's why you're here on earth is to be a hero in this time of emergency and yeah it's just not it's not what we're usually told it's not what i was told so growing up let me get a little bit controversial here. And, you know, I hate to bring this all back to 
um, you know, the cur current coronavirus situation. But I think this on a climate change scale has been at least somewhat eye-opening to policymakers uh, and people across the world, um, you know, at least in my opinion, whether we're talking about like agriculture or, you know, greenhouse gas emissions, there's a lot of us on this planet. We're about to be 11 billion people. And, you know, it's pretty hard not to have a carbon footprint with as many of us that are there. Is this, and it's kind of politically incorrect to kind of talk about overpopulation, but should this be something that we're like talking about? And, and I don't know the solution to it, um, but it just seems like, you know, technology can take us so far, you know, recycling and, you know, but at the end of the day, you know, we need electricity to power our computers and do what we do every day. Um, we're going to have a carbon footprint, you know, should this pandemic be opening our eyes a little bit more to the overpopulation issue? And to add to that, before you answer, Margaret, how do you rank all of the different potential solutions in that sense to address the emergency? Because the magnitude of the emergency could it require a magnitude of a solution like that? Could it require like everybody having one kid and that's it or something that extreme? Or are there other solutions and how do you rank them? Right, so population is a factor, but when you look at how incredibly uh, discrepant carbon emissions are between wealthy countries and wealthy people, and poor countries, it's, I, I mean, uh, dealing, so, so if we want to talk about population control, it should really be in, you know, the fully developed wealthy world, that that's where the, where population control would really have most of an impact. In terms of consumption. Yes, in terms of consumption, right. But, um, but personally, I think that the best approach to population is to make sure every woman in the world has educated. Uh, is educated absolutely and has free access to contraception and family yeah. planning absolutely. um but so 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 sure but i think our entire economic system our entire energy system transportation system our whole economy is is built on fossil fuels right and, and so it's it's not, we can't solve this by shrinking population or consumption or uh, energy use. We have, uh, shrinking those or containing them is important, but we have to transition the infrastructure and uh, energy supply and agricultural system as, as quickly as humanly possible. What do you say to people that say, yeah, but if there were less people on the planet, everybody could just do whatever they wanted and it would be <laughs> fine because we could just, we had more resources for every individual person. Well, that's very narrow, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, she's got a point, you know, it's the kind of agriculture that we're having. Is it sustainable, you know, in the long run? I, I guess where I was coming from is that if you have 11 billion people, 11 billion people have to eat, whether it's, you know, whether it's lettuce or, or beef like you know each one of them has some kind of a carbon footprint and we need to kind of get this under control you see this with the coronavirus outbreak i mean these large pandemics start in densely populated cities it's why you see it very prevalent in places like china because they're very populated and so 
I mean, you know, it just seems like to me that overpopulation, and I, I totally receive your point, but it, it could just, it's just at some point we just got to say, okay, like, you know, this is an issue. Population and interacting with the habitat, right? Ecosystems that ha we haven't interacted with that natural environment in the same way that we are because of the changing climate, the population trends, all of that is creating these new risks to potentially emerge. I think that what you're really talking about is the concept of limits. And, you know, in the, in the United States, we've had this doctrine of endless growth, right? Growth in all things. And that's so talk not about that a little bit. sustainable. I'm glad you said that because that's been something that um, I think Greta Thunberg said, right? And she almost made it kind of a buzz line. And then I saw it on the headlines, this, the myth of endless growth. I don't think it became mainstream until she put it out there like that. So can you, can you define that for our viewers and just talk about what, what's the alternative? What, is the, what does it look like if we don't have that? That's been what's the main motivator for Western society. So there's an economic idea and a cultural idea in uh, the United States and in neoliberal capitalism and just capitalism in general that says the economy needs to grow and grow and grow. And our economy is extractive. It's based on digging things up and chopping them down and uh, taking fish out of the ocean. And um, it it is an inherently crazy idea because there's limits. I mean, there, there's a finite amount of all resources on this planet. And if you keep taking fish out of the ocean, soon there's no more fish. If you keep pumping chemicals into the atmosphere, um, the climate warms and uh, you get into a really horrible situation, which is where we are now. So then how did you come up with this uh, mo the, the terminology. Are you credited for saying climate emergency? Is this from you? And I know that you've done this really cool thing that I make. I want to make sure that we talk about, but the climate emergency declaration campaign. So first, where did climate emergency come from? Why are you using that language over crisis or change? And um, tell us about this campaign. So in 2016, I wrote a paper called Leading the Public into Emergency Mode a new strategy for the climate movement. And so in that, in that paper, I coined the phrase and concept of emergency mode, but I don't, I, um, I believe Philip Sutton and David Spratt coined the term uh, climate emergency in their book, Climate Code Red. We work really closely with those guys, but I, yeah, I, I provided psychological elaboration for the concept, which is the idea that there is a fundamentally different way of functioning as an individual or as a government or an institution during normal times versus during an emergency. And we're seeing this in real time with coronavirus, that uh, politically impossible things are suddenly happening rapidly. Um, because when there's an existential crisis and people fear uh, people feel motivated by fear and a sense of urgency, uh, what, yeah, uh, everything changes. Everything. All priorities change, resources change, focus changes, language changes, government changes. So, so in that paper I said, this is what the climate movement needs to be doing, is helping people see that climate is an existential emergency and requires this kind of response. 
And as part of that um, effort, which my organization, you know, that that's what we're trying to do is lead the public into emergency mode, is we pushed this uh, climate emergency declaration campaign where now more than 1,400 governments globally have declared a climate emergency. Um, we spread that across the United States and then recommended to our allies in Extinction Rebellion that they take on the cause. And that's where it really, really took off. And they also, the global green parties got on board. But um, yes, a pretty simple statement and very obviously true made by local governments that this is not a problem or an issue, but an existential emergency that affects everything else and puts us all in danger. What is the hashtag, climate emergency? What do you want our listeners to take away from this? I want to challenge everyone to uh, make, the, make the transformation that I did, meaning to stop and think, what could I do? What, what happens if I take responsibility for solving the climate emergency? On one hand, that's crazy, right? Take responsibility, this thing is huge. Like what can one person do? But on the other hand, I think it's the only sane approach is just to say, not on my watch. Like this is the apocalypse and I'm gonna do everything I can to stop this from happening. And we'll see how much that is. So that kind of leads into my next question because, you know, no offense, but you are one person. Um, we're all one person. And there's, you know, a million different activist groups, people out there, you know, that seem to have the band-aid or the solution, you know, that are pressing forward with a, a strategy. How do you work with those other activist groups or, you know, other groups that have different campaigns? And, you know, how do you begin to coalesce efforts uh, between groups and people uh, into one focused campaign that would actually see results? Great question. So for the past 30 or so years, the environmental movement and climate movement um, have pursued a strategy that I call gradualism, which combines policy advocacies that would reduce carbon emissions over decades and a communication style that says, um, kind of be rational, be reasonable, compromise, and very and tactics that are very professional. The climate emergency movement is very new, like in the last two years, and it has exploded. And it had talked, it has a different communications framework, advocacy framework, and tactics. So with communications, they say, this is an emergency. We need action now. We need mobilization now. Uh, for policy advocacy, we call for zero emissions in years, not decades. Demand that the government do every pull every lever, right? Spend without limit to save as much life as possible. We call to and use command and control policies and a more planned economy. So and and for tactics, they're much stronger, like school strikes, civil disobedience. So, so I, I'm making that clarification because we view these as fundamentally two different movements. These are not the same. And we collaborate with anyone working on the, in the climate emergency movement who's working for zero emissions 
at emergency speed plus drawdown and a transition that works for people that doesn't leave you know people behind like we're seeing with coronavirus i mean 30 percent or excuse me three million people filed for unemployment like the we we need to execute this in a way that doesn't itself cause the collapse of our country and civilization right so you are you're not like a fan from what i you're such a straight shooter and i love that that comes across immediately and um I feel like you have no politics and no bullshit in that sense. Like if somebody's interested, they want to be involved, you're willing to work with any and every organization. There's no like, um, we can't figure out a way to advance our common um, end goal, which is to drastically reduce the warming of the planet. Well, okay. So let me be devil's advocate, you know, especially when it comes to the U.S. government right now. I mean, you saw, and, and I actually thought it was a great thing, um, AOC's Green New Deal. We talked a lot about it on the show and, you know, the steps it could take to really cl- curb climate change. Absolutely. Um, and then we get to, okay, well, what's practical? What can we do? Because, you know, I'm sitting here, you see my lights on, uh, you know, I've got all the, you know, I recycle, but, you know, they come pick it up at my door every Friday. Before then, I really didn't recycle. I, I'm kind of bad you can slap me on the hand um but when does it get to be like okay you know we've got these big goals that we want to achieve but how can we win what are some small wins that we can take you know until we can get to the to the grand to the gold nugget all right so first of all i don't want to slap you on the hand or anybody i want to build a system that works that that doesn't murder all life just by living in it and using it. Um, uh, Okay, but to your main point, that is a very, very difficult question because as Bill McKibben says, physics doesn't negotiate, Right. right? Like politics is the art of the possible, but the solutions that are considered possible right now in Congress will absolutely not protect us from the hell that is coming. So it's like, we're, you know, all the way down here and we need to get here. And you, I I just don't think you get there by compromising and being, you know, calm and quote reasonable and, you know, not telling the truth because it might scare people. I, I think you, get to where we need to go by like shouting the truth from the rooftops and getting people to feel as impassioned about this as we feel so that they are are open to and even demanding rapid transformation now. And also going to vote. (laughs) That is, that is like the bare bare minimum. Right. Right. Well, okay. So I appreciate everything you're saying. What do you say to people that say you're being too inflammatory or unrealistic? Taylor and I both live in Washington, DC. Taylor's from this, hails from the same state as our lovely Mitch McConnell. (laughs) (laughs) Don't compare me with that. As a liberal can get and as liberal as a gay can get. So I really don't (laughs) see. You know, we have a great governor, by the way. Why? Is he really, is he just like, yeah, he's been a really good advocate for climate change brought a lot of farmers and a lot of people along with him. And, you know, I, I really think we need leaders like that. So 
Yeah, sure, but was... how do we get what Margaret's saying to happen? How do we get people to shout from the rooftops and, and despite what we know to be true, everybody's in their Banana Republic and J. Crew and not willing to talk louder than their indoor voice in the halls. Well, you're the one that got Rent the Runway delivered today <laughs> on a podcast, not Third me. economy. We don't need to buy, we share. <laughs> I'm I'm standing in my condo in a tank top that I've been wearing. Yeah, we can day. all see. We can see that. But, so, um, so you get on MSNBC and... No, <laughs> Margaret, sorry. This happens sometimes. But, <laughs> so what do you say to people that say you're being too inflammatory or unrealistic? I agree to disagree. I don't, I mean, I, I, I don't mean to be harsh, but I, I, I don't care. Yeah, that's um, what Jane Fonda said. We actually had her at the National Press Club while she was in DC doing her fire drill Fridays and somebody in the audience, I was part of the headliners committee that brought her in and somebody in the audience was like, what do you say? I asked the same question to her or the same question was asked to her that I just asked you and she had the same response. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, no, I, I, I literally just, it's like, I listen, my, my grandmother is a Holocaust survivor and she, from when I was a little, little kid, she was talking about the betrayal that she felt um, by the Germans around her and that she thought she knew or could trust. And I, I mean, this is, this is a existential and moral emergency. I am fighting for myself and my family and you and your family and the whole human family. So honestly, uh, fuck anyone who says uh, it's, I'm too adamant or something. I, I honestly don't care. <laughs> what does success look like for you? Because you do need to bring along those who are hesitant potentially to go along easily with this change of lifestyle as we've been comfortable and gotten to know, especially in the West. So one, how do we, how do you bring them along? And then how do you then say you've been successful? I, what I really think we need to achieve as a society is a, a shared recognition of the existential danger that we face. I wouldn't expect people to go along with the type of changes that we have to make for any other reason. Uh, we and but it's true all in uh, on one sense it's like asking for something very difficult on the other sense and on the other hand it's just asking people to look at reality to look at the situation and and decide do do we want to live is it is it worth it to us to change in order to continue uh, with the human project and whatever, the American experiment. I, I, I mean, yeah, personally, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. And I think that more and more people feel the same way. I, so, I mean, this is, I can't, it's like, it's like an epic movie or novel or a, even, you know, it's biblical in, in scale. You can't, overstate what's what's at stake so yeah let's let's throw down you know let's let's give it everything that's awesome i'm gonna let taylor close it out but i just want to say thank you so much for what you do for your passion it's really evident we're all virtual and via zoom right now but you're like coming through the screens and this is exactly what we need to see the societal um shift worldwide shift that we need to be able to continue to live and enjoy as best as we can and even better potentially. If everything goes according to plan. There's a really positive 
breathable, beautiful future ahead of us. So thank you for your part in all of that and doing what you do. Thank you so much. Like you. <laughs> yeah. You want to close up? That's a wrap for today. Have ideas for the show? Tweet us at Dr. Taylor Wallace. That's D-R-T-A-Y-L-O-R-W-A-L-L-A-C-E. And at Shetha C. That's S-W-E-T-A-C. Thank you for tuning in to Risky Behavior. Until next time.